Hello. You're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. My name is Chris Lay, and I'm the podcast operations manager for Lee. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we're presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. For this first series, we're taking a short drive east of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to learn more about the state's most notorious cold case, the 1977 slaying of three Girl Scouts. The episode you're about to hear is the fourth in a six-part series, so if this is your entry to the show, head back to episode one and start from the beginning. What you're going to hear first is audio from a series of articles written and read by Tulsa World journalist Tim Stanley that was originally published in 2017 to mark the 40th anniversary of the tragedy. After that, you're going to hear a conversation between myself and Tim that expands on the story and explores his experiences reporting the series so many decades after the initial crime. It might go without saying, but given the subject matter here and every story that we're going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart. While everything here would be fit to print in a newspaper, parents are still cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. For now, though, here's Tim reading Chapter 4, which is titled Unanswered Questions. One by one, the medical examiner knelt down by each of the three small bodies, and one by one, he confirmed what everybody present already knew. It was almost overwhelming, recalled Mike Wheat, who was standing alongside with his camera when the girls, Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Gousset, were officially pronounced dead. Everyone was kind of numb. A prior news reporter who often helped police by taking crime scene photos, Wheat had still been asleep when the call came into his home at 7.10 a.m. The words on the other end of the line had sent him scrambling, he said. It was the prior police dispatcher. He told me to grab my camera and gear and get to Camp Scott. They had three bodies on the ground, said Wheat, a reporter with the weekly prior Jeffersonian. At the time, that was all Wheat knew. It wasn't until they waved him through the camp gate and he parked, he said, that he learned it was three dead Girl Scouts. Blocking out the horror as best he could, Wheat went about his work. Over the next few hours, he took hundreds of photos for investigators. Most difficult, he said, were the shots of the young victims. He remembers one moment vividly. He was adjusting his focus on one of the girls when a fly came down and landed on her cheek. And I remember the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation agent, Kerry Thurman, who was kneeling there, rusted away with his hand. The gesture struck Wheat as poignant. At a scene of such inhuman savagery, he said, here was a small act of kindness, of humanity. The image has always stayed with me. To most, it was inconceivable, the idea that no one was going to answer for these horrific murders. And yet, on March 20, 1979, that seemed overwhelmingly to be the reality. The one and only person the state had fingered for the crimes had just been acquitted by a jury. To be clear, Jean Leroy Hart was not going free. He still had more than 300 years to serve for previous rape and burglary convictions. 
but for the murders, authorities had no plans to pursue any other suspects, they said. Maintaining they had prosecuted the right man, they called the verdict a gross miscarriage of justice. The parents of the slain girls were also united. They told reporters they believed the prosecution had made its case. I thought, and still do, there was substantial if not overwhelming evidence, Bo Farmer said, adding he was devastated by the verdict. Betty Milner remembers trying to brace herself and not anticipate what the verdict would be. When it came, she said, I was in shock. Particularly painful, she said, was how Hart's supporters just shouted like they were at a ball game and their team had won. I think that hit me harder than the verdict itself. The reaction from the other side couldn't have been more different, Milner added. Everybody was crying. Attorneys, agents, everybody. That included fiery, tough-as-nails prosecutor Ron Schaefer. I sure did cry, he said. No case ever affected me as much as this one did. It was hard to take. It really was. That they could let him go for something we really thought he did. If the heart side was over-jubilant, though, it was only because of its bottled-up frustration over the ordeal an innocent man had been subjected to, defense attorney Garvin Isaac said. He added that he can't forget the image of Hart, both hands over his eyes, overcome with emotion at the verdict. He was crying there on the council table, just crying. As for Isaacs, in the wake of the verdict, the legal world was taking notice. In winning Hart's acquittal, and in the process defeating Tulsa County District Attorney Buddy Fallis, defense attorney had pulled off what many thought impossible. And apparently, it hadn't been close. One juror, speaking on condition of anonymity, told the Tulsa World that all 12 had agreed after only five minutes of deliberation that Hart was not guilty. It wasn't any one thing, other jurors said. There were too many loose ends, too many things didn't add up. In an Associated Press interview a year later, juror Leela Ramsey said, None of us knew whether he did it or not. We were shocked that they didn't have any more evidence than what they had. Forty years later, Isaac still has nothing but praise for the jurors who reportedly received threats after the verdict. They were the best jurors you could ever have on a case. Thank God we had them. In previous interviews, Fallis, who led the prosecution team, speculated about the trial and the jury's decision, wondering if perhaps the show of support for Hart had intimidated them. Or maybe it was the fact that Hart was headed back to prison anyway to serve a 300-year sentence, Fallis said, which wasn't admissible, but which the defense let slip. The jury knew it could acquit, and Hart, if in fact he had done it, still wasn't going free. No fuss, no muss, Fallis said. Rather than criticize the jurors, though, the veteran prosecutor cast the net of blame a little more broadly. I still feel it's not a matter of whether I won or lost. It's a matter of did I? Did society avenge this act against the little girls, Fallis said. I felt like there were failures, a lot of failures, of society to react. With Hart back in prison and no plans from the state to pursue it further, Oklahomans might have thought they'd heard the last of the case. They couldn't have been more wrong. On June 4th, two months after the verdict, and almost two years to the day since her daughter's murder, Betty Milner was working in her kitchen when a neighbor came over. She had startling news. She said, Jean Hart was dead, Milner said. She had just heard it on TV. Almost immediately, as Milner tried to digest what she'd been told, 
A clamor sounded on her front porch. It was a group of reporters and cameramen, she said. The news about Hart had broken just minutes earlier, and they were already there to interview her. Hart, Milner would learn, had suffered a probable heart attack in prison. He had collapsed after exercising and was pronounced dead shortly after. It would be hours, though, before Milner finally had the time to attach any meaning to those details. She remembers her exact thoughts. With Hart's death, I felt like justice was served, she said. That had been my prayer. What man couldn't do, God would. It was a bombshell. Jean Leroy Hart, long sought-after fugitive from justice, dead of a heart attack. And just two months after his acquittal in the murders of three Tulsa-area Girl Scouts. Like many Hart supporters, Isaac smelled a rat. Hart's death and the timing were just too convenient, he thought. But while even now, 40 years later, conspiracy theories abound, the defense attorney says he was quickly convinced there was no foul play. His death was natural, he said, adding that he looked into it himself. The medical examiner found severe blockage, and moreover, he said, Hart had a family history of heart problems. Still, I was just shocked, Isaac said. I thought he was going to be all right. Whatever he might have been before, Hart emerged from the trial a changed man, he said. If he had been turned loose, he wouldn't have hurt anybody ever again, Isaac said. I guarantee you, it was a life-changing event. For those who believed in Hart's guilt, the news of his demise didn't necessarily bring satisfaction. I didn't know how I felt about it, Sherry Farmer said. I had thought to myself, someday I want to go talk to him. And suddenly that was gone. That opportunity was lost to me. For the record, Hart died denying his involvement in the Girl Scout murders. In a letter written to the Tulsa Tribune just hours before his death, he rejected a request for an interview and noted, The record has been set straight as far as I'm concerned. The jury voted right when they voted not guilty, and my family and supporters knew the entire process was a sham. Hart reiterated all of this in the only interview he did do, an exclusive with the Cherokee Advocate, a tribal publication. Conducted three days before his death, in it, Hart revealed, among other things, that he'd been holed up in that remote cabin for months. He had even watched the manhunt on TV, he said. Hart's funeral was held a few days later in Locust Grove. It drew an estimated 1,000 mourners. To accommodate them all, it was held in the high school gym. It filled up the gym, recalled Wheat, who covered it for the Jeffersonian. It was a somber ceremony, he added. But like the trial and hearings, there was still something of a sideshow feel to it. Not everyone was there to support Hart, Wheat said. A lot of people showed up just to see who else showed up, and there were a lot of newspeople there. Isaac served as a pallbearer. After the burial, which followed the service in Baloo Cemetery, I looked up, Isaac said, and there's a huge thunderhead popping up. Huge. I'll never forget it. A storm soon followed, unleashing lightning and thunder and rain, rain like hell. Isaac said an Indian friend at his side commented on it. You know what that means, he said of the storm. I said no. And he said, his spirit got to where it was going. Regardless of how people felt about Hart's fate, or which side they fell on regarding the verdict, one thing could be agreed on by all. 
three children had been murdered and their families deserved answers. As he covered Hart's funeral, Wheat found his mind wandering back to that morning two years earlier. Today, 40 years later, his memories of Monday, June 13, 1977, still have the power to bring him to tears. These were children, he said. Children. Choking up during a recent interview, he apologized, adding, I haven't talked about this very much. Arriving at Camp Scott around 7.45 that morning, less than two hours after the girls' bodies were discovered, the first thing I noticed was how green it was, Wheat said. The smell of fresh air. It was a beautiful, calm morning. The tranquility was such a contrast to the violence of what had taken place there. Adding to the surreality, somewhere off to the side, I could hear children, and they were singing in groups. Camp officials were working hard, he would learn, to keep the other campers busy, shielding them from the horror that was unfolding. Taking photos at the direction of police, Wheat was shown to the slain girl's tent, where most of the attack had occurred. Blood was everywhere inside, he said, pooled on the floor, on the pillows, on the cots. I'd never photographed a major homicide, said Wheat, a former Navy photographer, adding that his previous experience with violent scenes was limited to suicides and traffic fatalities. It was the scene he shot after the tent, though, that still haunts him most. Three sleeping bags, one yellow plaid, one dark green, the other a red flower pattern, lying together beside the trail, the morning sunlight through the trees creating an ethereal glow overhead. As he stood over the girls' bodies, shooting downward with his camera, he was struck by their faces. They were really calm, he said. When he was done, he lowered his camera. Then they zipped them up and took them away. At the time, Wheat had a three-year-old daughter at home, and his wife was pregnant with their second. When he saw them that night, he couldn't help thinking of the murdered girls. As a news photographer, he said, you just frame the scene. You don't think about the humanity. Your job is to document, but you still don't get isolated from it. You bring those things home. Images from that day weren't all wheat brought home with him that night. As he was taking off his shoes, he noticed something on the soles. Traces of blood. It had been impossible to avoid as he'd been taking photos at the scene. There was so much blood, he said. What you just heard was the fourth of six articles written in 2017 by Tim Stanley for the Tulsa World, as read by the author. All of which can be found at TulsaWorld.com, presented with incredible new photos alongside images from the newspaper's archives. Links to those and any other relevant content can be found in the show notes. After a short pause, we're going to go to a conversation between myself and Tim Stanley that was recorded just last week. this i feel like of the episodes that that we've done so far i think i have probably the fewest questions for this we can dive right in yeah i uh, and we can if, if you want we can start kind of where the story starts because i do think there are a couple of things i could say here and 
they're in a way it's almost two series of three stories which would make this one story number one in the second series because what i think one of the things that i wanted to do here was to again remind readers who are going on this journey with us i wanted to remind them what the stakes were what what is all of this really about uh, why are we doing this and that is more than anything what happened to these three young girls and then you know once we bring readers back you know, into that mindset and then, then to go from there and to begin to develop this idea of how these crimes affected other people close to the case. We've done some of that with the families. Now I want to start bringing in some other voices. And I remember distinctly as, as I was kind of planning this out, once we'd done some of the interviews, I don't think I realized it when I first set up an interview with Mike Wheat, but I quickly came to the realization afterwards that his interview was a dynamite interview and what he had to say was kind of the perfect way to lead it off and bring people back in because what Mike had to offer really more than anyone was a unique vantage point. He was able, you know, really more than anyone to put us as readers, you know, directly on the scene the morning after the crimes. No other media had that access. I mean, if you, the other reporters and photographers, as they began to, to stream in, you know, they were stopped at the front gates to the camp and that's where they stayed and they would get their updates, you know, how that works. I mean, if you've been in the media, they get their updates periodically from, you know, an, an official. In fact, I think Sid Wise, the local prosecutor, was handling all of that. They didn't have access to the camp. They didn't have access certainly to the scene within the camp, but Mike, we did. Now, the interesting thing, and I think we probably need to, to bring this up. First of all, Mike, as we've introduced him before in the series, uh, he worked for a weekly uh, mm -hmm. newspaper out of Pryor. Uh, it's now defunct, but at the time, the Pryor Jeffersonian. It's a small town newspaper, probably had a staff, I think, of three people, uh, Mike being one of them. And like uh, with a lot of small town papers, uh, he, he had to wear a lot of hats. So Mike did his own reporting and took his own pictures. He was a photographer. Uh, he'd been a photographer for the Navy at one time uh, before he got into journalism. And you mentioned that towards the end of the article with this wasn't his, his first crime scene. Yeah, to be clear, it was re really puzzling. And I'm sure it will be for some of our readers. How in the world did a, you know, a member of the media you know, local reporter had that kind of access. Well, the deal was, you know, at that time, it was not unusual for a rural sheriff's department to call on the local media photographer to shoot crime scenes for them. They really didn't have anyone who could do that in-house, but, you know, a local organization like the Jeffersonian would have, you know, a couple of people who could uh, who could do that, who had the equipment and the, uh, the knowledge of how to do that. And that's that's how that worked. And for that at that time in Mays County, Mike Wheat was that guy. And so he uh, he would get called out to crime scenes, um, but certainly not anything like this did he have in his prior experience. Um, they didn't have that many homicides to begin with in, in Mays County. But so Mike's perspective, you know, is very unique. And I just felt like 
you know, with this story, this was the right place to kind of go back in and bring Mike's direct witness of the crime scene to bear. Because, you know, if you're doing this strictly chronologically, Mike's part here would fit in story number two. That just didn't seem the right place for it. And I think part of it is that, you know, his memories, I mean, it's such a visceral, emotionally affecting scene that he describes. I felt that needed to kind of be pulled out and put somewhere else so that it could be uh, kind of focused on. You haven't, up until now, really gone into the details of what happened to the girls. I mean, there's kind of a clinical police report approach to it. And it seems like, I mean, now it's coming from someone who has such a deep, emotionally affected experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're not just, you know, rubbernecking this horrible crime scene without any perspective. You're going into it with someone who, to this day, is still, you know, feeling the, the effects of having, having borne witness to that. Yeah. And that's something that, yeah, I want to double underscore what you just said. No, you're exactly right. And a couple of things about, about Mike, we, you know, he had never been interviewed about the case, not in the 40 years since then. He still lives in Pryor, uh, county seat there of Mays County, you know, where basically all of this was going on around there. Mike is, uh, he was a great journalist. Um, you can't really judge a journalist just by the paper they worked for. That was a very small paper, but they were doing a lot of excellent reporting. Uh, there was also a daily paper in Pryor, had two papers in the town. I ran across his name doing my uh, due diligence, you know, up front. I was ransacking the old archives, looking through old articles, which you as an archivist, of course, uh, you can appreciate, uh, Chris. I just ran across his name mentioned in, in some story somewhere. It wasn't even a byline of his. He was mentioned in a story as having shot photos at the scene, which, you know, I was like, yeah, this would be a good guy to talk to. So I just did, you know, some Googling, was able to track him down and just call him out of the blue and kind of told him what I was wanting. And um, he was very gracious, uh, very gracious to give us an interview. You mentioned how obvious it is, you know, how deeply he affected, was affected by this and even 40 years later still is. I will tell you that, you know, we did the interview at his home at points, uh, when he describes what he saw on the scene that morning, I mean, his hand is visibly trembling. I mean, his voice shakes. It's been 40 years, and yet you can tell, I could tell, sitting across from him, how deeply and permanently, you know, he was affected by what he saw that day. And, and that was moving for me, you know, as the reporter, as the interviewer, to see that. And... You know, some of the details that he brings out that have stayed with him have stayed with me. And I think are some of the details that will stay with with readers and listeners uh, after they've, you know, after they finish this series. Just the way he described coming home to his own small child that evening. You know, this is a side that that we as journalists often don't show about ourselves. I mean, because when we're on the job, you know, uh, we, you know, we're all business. I mean, uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's part of the deal. 
you're not supposed to make yourself the story necessarily. Exactly. And so, but we all at some point have to come home, don't we? I mean, we do, and we have to live our own lives and there's no way stories we've told don't continue to affect us. And the other thing really, and it just stays with me is after he got home and he's holding this child, he noticed, he looked down and he noticed some blood on his shoe. You know, I can just, I can see that in my mind. And this is probably one of those moments in the interview where Mike, Mike was even trembling as he talked about it. As a former English major, I can't even, I can't help but appreciate the symbolism in, in that image. You don't just walk away from something like he saw that day. It stays with you. And it has stayed with him for 40 years. The other image the fly that landed on the cheek of, of one of the little girls and one of the investigators brushed it away. I mean, you, you look at that on the face of it and it just seems like in the scheme of things, so insignificant a thing. I mean, because this gesture, it can't benefit the little girl. I mean, cause she's gone, but you know, Mike was right there. He was taking pictures. He saw that and just the stark contrast which he, he points out between this horrific scene and then this, this very small but poignant act of mercy, just, it struck him then and it's, it's still with him. And I'll tell you, I mean, it's still with me. I still remember him describing it and I can see it in my mind. And I think that will probably be the case too for the people you know who read the series who listen to it. I mean, in a sense, everyone who comes to this story leaves with a little blood on them because it stays with you. And it's been that way for me in reporting it. But um, I think for anyone who spends any time, you know, with these details, I mean, it's going to have the same effect. I just think it's going to stay with you. And I think certain images you're never going to be able to completely move on from. The memories and the experiences that, that he brought to this article in, in the series was really heavy uh also i mean the memory that he had of the of the sleeping bags and the sun coming through i mean i it's the i don't know it just captures the delicate nature of innocence that that was taken and it really is a, a truly affecting thing to to read or in this case you know hear you having read it i can tell you i still see these things these images are still in my mind and i mean it's been three and a half years you know since we did the the work on this but you know there are things like that 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 just stay with you because on some level they they kind of symbolize the whole thing the, the whole story itself you know, ultimately a project like this is only going to be as good as the interviews. If the interviews are lacking, that can make or break you. That was not a problem for us with this. And I think Mike is a great example of the caliber of interview we were able to get. And I'm just, I'm still very grateful to him for his graciousness um, and being willing to, to talk about that. You know, some memories that obviously uh, are very uncomfortable for him, but that he has he has to live with. I mean, that's the deal. You don't walk away. Yeah, I'm just still very grateful to him for being willing to do that, and all the people really who who contributed to this because you know it's it's not easy. It really isn't. We go from the intensity of the actual crime scene 
into sort of the uh, certainly not boring, but you know, into the uh, you know the the jury deliberation room. Yes, I mean we can't just kind of leave the trial you know where it was because there's some um, things that do need to be discussed, and you know that's one of them. We would have loved to have been able to interview one of those jurors, uh, but our our search uh, we just could not find one. Most of them were deceased. Um, so we kind of had to rely on just what they said in the media at the time. Um, they didn't give lengthy interviews, but there were some things that we could use. And so we did uh, so we did use that to kind of bring in at least the juror's perspective. I mean, the surprising thing to me was that they all seemed to agree that it was a not guilty verdict pretty much within five minutes of going in to deliberate. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, that's about as that's about as quick a turnaround as you get. Based on on the evidence that was there, I I can completely understand how how they came to that because I mean it definitely feels like the defense attorney did a bang up job, but the prosecution just didn't prove their their case beyond the shadow of a doubt. And I mean, one of the things that that jumped out for me from there was that well, obviously Hart was going to jail regardless for, you know, 300 years. The jury was not supposed to know that, but the defense let it slip, quote unquote. And I didn't, I, I'm having a hard time with the idea of how that didn't necessarily result in a mistrial. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That seems like the judge should have just like closed the book and said like, thank you all very much. Uh, you know, it seems very confusing. Yeah, I mean, in in other cases, something like that, uh, they would have jumped on that right away, and um, you would think that the prosecution too would have said, "Hey, judge, you know what did he just say?" I mean, at the same time, they still felt, I'm sure, that they had a, a pretty good shot to win the case, so they didn't necessarily want a mistrial. But um, yeah, hindsight though, and that's you know been something that people have speculated about that maybe the jurors you know, had more doubt than they let on that uh, Hart was innocent or they may have harbored some suspicion that he was guilty, but they had that as kind of a fallback. They knew, regardless of what their verdict was, um, that he was, you know, going to be locked up. So it was like, you know, whichever way we go with this, we at least have that. So if if we find him innocent and he is, in fact, guilty, it's not like he's going to be able to hurt anybody. I you know that's just speculation and they never, no one ever said that, but. And I mean, Hart was only in prison for two months after that. The trial ended, I think at the end of March, 79. And then he of course went immediately back to prison. And then I think um, in what's maybe the ultimate twist in the story, he, he died suddenly, I think. I don't have it in front of me, but it was in June. So we're talking a, a, probably more than two months. And the other thing, you know, it's he does do one other interview. And it's like three days after this interview he does with a, a, a tribal publication. Three days after that interview that he that he falls over dead. And he'd even written a letter to the newspaper that morning or just a few hours. Yeah, you know. No one saw this coming. I mean, it was an astonishing twist, you know, in a story that already had more than its share. And I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, 
as I, you know, we talk about, there was no evidence of foul play, ruled a heart attack. There was a family medical history of heart issues. Isaacs, you know, and his legal team, they conducted their own review and they were satisfied that that was, you know, an accurate diagnosis. Um, but I mean, you think about it, though, even with a genetic predisposition, you know, Gene Hart's lifestyle for the last, you know, three, four years of living on the run, that surely also took a toll. And maybe it was the combination of that and, and that history that that ultimately did him in. But hey, no doubt the timing of it certainly raises eyebrows. I mean, you're talking about a case that was already a proven generator of conspiracy theories. You can imagine how this just fed into that. Dick Wilkinson, our OSBI guy, told me after after this, you know, when we interviewed him, he said that after after that happened, he said, you know, fellow law enforcement would just come up to him and joke and josh him and say things like, how'd you guys do it? And he just, it made him angry. And they were just kidding. I don't think they seriously thought that, you know, there was foul play and that law enforcement had had something to do with this. But again, the timing is, but the medical evidence, you know, you know, suggested it was just a matter of time. Um, and it just happened to be after this exercise that his heart quit on him or he had a heart attack. But that doesn't make it any less, you know, of a bombshell. Are there any conspiracy theories about it that go significantly beyond just people saying it really is more convenient than you'd think for him to have passed away? It's not something I've done a lot of research on into all the conspiracy theories that have been generated in this case. But I, I mean, I do absolutely think that there are people out there that probably to this day still think that you know, somebody within law enforcement, somebody from the investigation team, somebody involved with the prosecution, somebody with OSBI or the sheriff's office, or maybe all of them in cahoots, somehow, you know, engineered to have him knocked off in prison. Yeah, I totally believe that there are people who still believe that. But I think if you're just kind of a drive-by consumer of this story, and you just kind of see the high points. I think it's that's a very easy conclusion to draw that just based on the timing, there had to be some something fishy going on here. When you start to actually dig down in the details, that becomes much more unlikely to the point of probably being impossible. Um, and again, his legal team did, uh, Garvin Isaacs, they obviously were probably drawing their own similar conclusions when he first died. But they, you know, they looked at the autopsy. They talked to the investigators. They did their own review of it. And Isaacs is satisfied to this day, you know, and t- told us that this was uh, this was Hart's family history, basically catching up with him, combined with the fact that, you know, he'd had a high stress lifestyle that he'd been living for, you know, an extended period of time. But Conspiracy theories, uh, people enjoy those. Uh, I get it. But sometimes you got to just dig a little deeper. And in this case, I don't think the evidence supports that. With Garvin Isaacs letting it slip in court that he was already going to be in jail for hundreds of years. And uh, with there not being a mistrial based on that, that made my eyebrows perk up. And then the other thing that jumped out was that Garvin Isaacs was a pallbearer. Is that common at all for for defense attorneys to i've never heard of it but again i'm not a crime reporter i don't cover this kind of thing you know a lot i think it was just um a convergence of of circumstances because i mean his 
I think Isaacs was very close to the family. I think they were very grateful to him. They saw him really as nothing short of Gene's savior in this case. They really had a high opinion of him. And Gene died so soon after the trial that I just think that that relationship that they had made with Isaacs, I mean, I just in their minds made sense uh, for them to ask him, you know, to be part of, of the, uh, you know, Paul Barron team. I, but no, uh, Chris, I've never, I'm not aware of that, um, you know, having happened anywhere else. It does seem a little odd, but I think it, I think just, it just speaks to, you know, his relationship to that family and their, you know, their deep um, respect and gratitude, you know, towards him. I mean, you, I think, hit it on the head with, uh, with Isaacs still being so close in the orbit of the family. I think if, if Hart had, had gone on to live several years and had died, you know, much later and, and they'd had a service, I can't imagine, you know, that, that Isaacs would still be. But, I mean, who knows? Did you get a sense from the families that this was about as close to closure as, as they're going to get? I think for the farmers, I think for Sherry in particular, she was more, uh, I don't hate to say disappointed, but she was hoping, I think, to actually confront him at some point. You know, that's not that's not an unusual thing for a, a mother who's lost a child to a violent offender. Again, assuming his heart was guilty. I, you know, the farmers believed he was, and I think she was hoping uh, to be able to to talk to him, she was hoping, you know, to be able to maybe that maybe ultimately he would open up and tell him what happened, and she lost that opportunity forever. I think, uh, you know, Betty Milner, as she says in the story, I think Betty is a is a deeply uh, religious woman. Um, she's very serious about her faith. That's obviously it's it's been a great help to her in dealing with all of this. But I mean, she, you know, outright saw that as God's justice, that man's justice had failed uh, in this case, and that she believed Hart was was guilty and that um, because man's justice had failed, uh, God intervened. Not sure that she ever intended, uh, you know, to go the route of trying to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, closure. Uh, closure is, you know, is a complicated thing. I I, I think more than anything, they probably, generally speaking, and I don't want to be a, a spokesman for the families, but I, I think that they, well, I mean, maybe they on some level thought that he deserved it. I think that more than anything, they were sorry for not being able to to get the final answers that he, in their minds, may have been the only person that could give it to give those answers to them. I mean, that, that chance was gone. I mean, he's gone forever. If he had lived, you know, if he'd stayed in prison, even though he was acquitted of this crime, I think there was always a possibility if, if he was in fact guilty that, yeah, he might uh, ultimately talk about it. That's not unprecedented. And, uh, and in, in doing so, given some relief to, you know, families, but, uh, you know, when you, when the guy's gone, just like that, um, it's not a lot you can do about it. So, I think it was complicated for them emotionally. You, you feel one way about it one moment and one way the next. Either way, yeah, it, it, it's if it's not closure, it's the end of a chapter, you know, in this story. 
And, you know, where do you, where do you go from here? Because if, if he was the guy uh, that he's, he's taken, uh, he's taken the truth uh, with him to the grave and, um, you know, a tough thing to deal with. For sure. And the, you know, where do we go from here will be explored a little further in, in the next two chapters between how the families process it and turn their grief into positive things for similarly affected families across America and where things go from here on the scientific side of things. We're going from the unanswered questions of chapter four to trying to find good. It's been a long road getting there, but uh, yeah, we're going to see, you know, what do you do? If you're a family and you're ever in this situation, I mean, what, what do you do with the rest of your life? Uh, not an easy question to answer. Um, and certainly um, there have been families that have been destroyed by situations like this. Well, thank you for tuning in to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. There is a lot more where that came from just over the horizon. So make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. As I said earlier, there are a ton of incredible additional resources that you can explore on the Tulsa World website, which I'll have links to in the show notes. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Tim Stanley and the rest of the team at the Tulsa World for the work they put in reporting the series in 2017. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay.